John 4 verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's Word alone is what endures forever. And may He bring His blessing to it. This is our uh, message on this series of 12 regarding the church. And uh, as with all of these messages, a whole lot more could be said on each one of them. The first one being about Christ building His church and how the church is God's kingdom revealed here on earth. And the second one about the marks of the church are to be there from Acts 2.42. And then, of course, uh, last week as we considered the church in, in her identity and communion with Christ. Well, this morning we are looking at the church and her worship. And I have to say this so that you're keenly aware. One message is not going to cover all the aspects of what worship pertains to. But this message is speaking to more what is our purpose and the glory of worship itself. Why it has been given to us as the redeemed of the Lord. There are two chief labors of the church. If you were to sum up anything that the church is doing in the world as God's people, two things will always stand out. They're not independent or exclusive of one another, but they do have their places. And namely, those two chief labors of the church are worship and evangelism. The Lord Himself declares in this text that the purpose of the redeemed is to worship God. And if you were to turn into our confession of faith and Look at chapter 21, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is in the back of our hymn books, but you can find it online. You can read an entire chapter devoted to religious worship and the Lord's Day. And when we talk about worship, in that sense, we are talking about what we are doing here today as the gathered, assembled people of God, His church. We are worshiping God together. 
I understand worship of God can happen in many other uh, sectors of our life, in our homes, in our personal devotions, in our workplaces. Indeed, all of life is to be given over to the Lord in worship. We understand that. Our shorter catechism, question number one, again, one of the most famous uh, questions and answers uh, that are, are known by most Christians, maybe not ex, uh, so in, uh, concisely stated, but man's chief purpose is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's your chief purpose in everything. But when the Lord in our text here uses worship, it's a very exclusive word that speaks to the heart bowing down prostrated before God in an act of homage to Him. In fact, I want to define that worship for you. It is, worship is the offering of praise, adoration, and thanksgiving to God in humble devotion where He is given the honor, glory, and blessing due His name. I'll say it again and then I'll repeat it one more time within the message. But that definition of worship as I said it before you is taken from Psalm 100 and from Revelation 5, 11 to 14. Combining them together because Psalm 100 is that call to us as God's people. Hear, hear those, those words. It's God's calling to the people that He has redeemed. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all your land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And enter His gates. Enter His courts. You see, there's, there's something there that tells us about worship that Jesus is speaking of. The worship where we are drawn up by God in the Spirit into His presence. Now you think about that. Even though we are present here, what God is doing in that worship is He is saying, Come to Me! <laughs> we always think of worship as we're bringing God down to where we are. That's the wrong idea. In worship, God is saying, come into my presence with thanksgiving and with praise. With Be thankful and bless His name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. And you combine that psalm with Revelation 5 and you see that's what the church in heaven is doing right now. Is giving that glory in all perfection and holiness that is due to the Father and the Lamb who sit on the throne. What we do on this Lord's Day is that kind of worship that the Lord calls for. The offering of praise, adoration, and thanksgiving to God in humble devotion where He is given the honor, glory, and blessing do His name. Do you worship God? <laughs> worship has been controversial for the last, at least the last five decades that I have been in church. 
worship has seen its share of wars. Mostly, it's worship between what we consider to be traditional versus contemporary. The only thing I always note about those two words is you're not talking about the whole of the service. What are you talking about when you ask someone, how do you worship God? What's the style of your worship? Is it traditional or contemporary? And what do we all mean by that? What kind of music do you sing? The worship is more than just music. Worship has been controversial in the area of liturgy versus open worship. I didn't realize that there was such a thing until I was reading about it this past week. Open worship, it's just whatever, as opposed to liturgy. There's a regulative principle of worship that we hold to um, that is. A message all on its own, but it's about how God is to be worshipped. What are the elements? What makes worship more or less pure? And worship has been controversial in the idea of, is this Lord's Day gathering of God's people what is being pointed to here when the Lord speaks of worship? Or is all of life supposed to be worship? And the answer is both. But very specifically, Christian Sabbath assembly is the worship that distinguishes the kingdom of God from the world. It distinguishes the church most clearly in this world. We have other contentions, phraseology. Uh, I've seen in this last generation the use of the word worship within the realm of the church directed exclusively to certain people or teams. Worship teams. Worship leaders. And a whole lot more in the way of images and objects that are utilized within worship. I think though, that the biggest problem with worship, the greatest problem with worship, is us. All of us. I I have my preferences, as you do. But we are inclined to attaching an excessive importance of our own preference and and manners to worshiping God. That's why I read from Deuteronomy 4. Like you heard last week, the idols of our heart come out when it comes to worship. You'll have it, the same service. You'll have people who will come up and say, I really felt the Spirit today, Pastor. And in that same service, Pastor, I really didn't feel the Spirit moving this morning. It's a good thing the Spirit doesn't work according to our preferences, isn't it? Pastor, I got so much out of the service today. It was such a blessing to my heart. Pastor, that wasn't a very good message this morning. In the same same Sunday. I'm just amazed that people keep coming back. (laughs) No, I say that facetiously. But we have other things. The singing was great this morning. Or the singing 
wasn't all that great. And you, you hear these comments about worship as though how my personal experience with it is what determines whether or not it is good. And that's wrong. What makes worship great? Think right now. What makes worship great? It's not the building. It's not your being moved in your heart. It's not how well it was presented. I'm just going to stop here and ask Dan if you wouldn't mind asking him to move along. Thank you. He's not here to worship. (laughs) I don't say that. We're just not allowed to have the door blocked by people. What makes worship great? Even Jesus, as He's meeting with this woman, she was looking at the place. And there was controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews about where God was to be worshipped. And why did Jesus really chastise her, rebuke her in her perception about where God was to be worshipped? Why was it that up until that point when Christ issues these words, did He say to her, you got it wrong. The Jews have it right. Why? Because Jerusalem itself was a very particularly noble and glorious place? What made worship great then? And what makes worship great today? It's all about the person to whom it is offered. The Samaritan woman did not understand where did God choose to put His name? And where did God say, My glory dwells here on the earth. Come and worship Me. And what did she say? Well, no, I don't want to go there because I don't like the people. We want to come here. And in that time and in that dispensation of God's grace, His name was exclusive to a temple and to a place because Christ had yet to come. But Christ has now come. And where has God chosen to put His name? On the church. This gathering, what makes this gathering and the worship that we are giving to God so great is that God's name is upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That God is pleased to say, Here I will dwell. And here, to you sinners, what is going to make your worship great is that person in whom it is offered, Jesus Christ, my Son. We read from Hebrews 8 is the assurance. I'll read it again for you. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And this next phrase, a minister... Most often in the Greek language, when we read in our English Bible the word minister, it is the Greek word diakonis, from which we get the English word deacon from. It means to minister or serve mercy. To serve or to be a, a minister of mercy in that way. But that's not the word here. A minister, it's the word liturgis. It's the word that we get our English word liturgist. We have a liturgist in heaven. 
a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle that the Lord erected. We have Christ in heaven who is liturgizing our worship in His name. What makes worship great? The person in whom it is offered, Jesus Christ, as well as the person who kindles our soul to worship, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Jesus here in verse 23 talks about the true worshiper. Are you a true worshiper? It's not so much about is your worship true at this point, but are you a true worshiper? Has your heart been renewed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Do you have that yearning and urging of your soul to say, praise God, Christ is Lord? What are we told about that? No man can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. And what makes our worship great is that the Holy Spirit has come and taken this dead soul that did not love God and has revived it, breathed life into it, brought forth that love for God from within our hearts. Because worship really comes down to that in its base sense. Loving God. What makes worship great? The person in whom it is offered. The person who kindles our soul. The person to whom it is offered. The Father. Do you notice how often Jesus directed this woman to the Father? I mean, you take this with what we read in Deuteronomy 4 and what were we told about God and worship together. Why was God enforcing upon Israel even when you go into the land and you see the world around you? Don't take up their idols and images. Don't worship me in that way. Why? Because your God is a consuming fire. Jealous is God. Jealous is His name. And what is He jealous for? His glory. Who He is. Who He is as the everlasting God. And we come to Him with objects and we come to Him with our own fashioned ideals and we say, God, here's here's what I'm going to give you today. It's a wrong approach. What makes worship great is when we look and we see who are we worshiping. And it's a Father who has given His Son to us to deal with our sinfulness and our offensiveness to His glory. A Father who has given us His Spirit to revive within us a heart that will seek Him. A Father who wants true worshipers. That's worship. And when you have this focus about who, who makes our worship great, our preferences, our ceremonies, our liturgy is more, and I don't say this to say it isn't important, but it's more inconsequential at that point, isn't it? Because we're recognizing that whatever we offer to God is impure. It does fall short. It's never 
complete as it should be. Because, as we heard from Psalm 145, great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. How can I worship Him as He ought to be? And so with the little time we have left, I want us to consider those three points that are brought out here. The church and her worship is that first of all to worship the Father. And that is not to say that worshiping Christ and worshiping the Holy Spirit is at all wrong. The focus here though is on the glory of God the Father. And again, we note here how this woman was hung up on places. Uh, She wasn't alone in what she was hung up on when Jesus began His ministry and He encountered the Pharisees. What were they hung up on? Their traditions. (laughs) You have that in Matthew 15 that Jesus said very clearly about them that they are like a people who draw near to Me with their mouth and honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So focused on tradition, their heart was left out. (laughs) The Jews were focused on a building. And when the true building, Christ came, they would not bow to Him and they would not acknowledge that He was the true temple through whom they could worship God. They were still stuck on their building. And what Jesus is doing here for us in our own sensibilities is telling us there's a far greater truth about worship and that is you you are worshiping God who is a Father to you in His grace. And that because of Christ. And what we we see here most amazingly and, and humbly is that We're not seeking the Father. (laughs) The Father is seeking us. You read in verse 23, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Isn't that humbling? It's because without the Father seeking, we are no different than the fool that is expressed in Psalm 14 who says there is no God. We are no different than Pharaoh who would say in his heart, who is this Lord that I should obey Him. Here we're, we're being shown, we're being introduced to one of the most astounding things is that God would look down upon the whole of this world and begin to seek worshipers and would say to your heart, you come and worship Me. And you think about how you are able to sit here and in spirit and in truth worship God. How is it that you are doing this when almost 90% of this city is sitting in their homes without thought or regard to God? And it's because the Father has sought you. That's what we mean by grace. Like John Newton, amazing grace that, that saved a wretch like me. 
I who was lost have been found. I who was blind can now see. Why and how did that happen? Because the Father came with His gracious love and said, I have chosen to love you and I am going to change your heart so that you will now love me. We think, well, what about other people? And we think, well, that just sounds like uh, God isn't love because He's left so many... No, God is being loving and gracious and saying, I'll take this wretched sinner and make them one who can worship Me. When we begin to understand God's grace at work in that way, it makes worship great. From this perspective, that, that a love beyond myself was set upon me. And when, when you think of the Father seeking you, it, it, it meets us in all of our ignorance of how God is to be worshipped. I, I think that's where Jesus, as He deals with this woman, He, he really brings that out. You, you are ignorant in your worship of God. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the time is coming when the Father is going to seek true worshipers. And and when you put that all together, you you stop and you look. All of our worship. Like, really, how, how perfect and right is it? And yet the Father accepts it. <laughs> We're blind to our imperfections. We're blind even to the best of our offerings. Even there when we understand the Father seeking true worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth, we, we stop and we realize we need a perfection that is beyond ourselves in order to take what we offer to God to be accepted by Him. And He provides that. This past week, if I could use an illustration personal. I had two grandchildren send us drawings for Easter. <laughs> a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Well, the six-year-old, we could tell what it was. An Easter egg, and it was all decorated. Now, mind you, it's not like any egg that I'm used to seeing and visualizing. But he sent it, and he said, to Papa with love. And the other one, who's a little younger, had all these yellow markings on it, which I perceived to be little chicks, yellow chickens. Um, They were Papa with love. And I received them with a whole lot of joy and love, knowing that they come from a child who is filled with many imperfections. It wasn't a Van Gogh, but it was because you could cover it with so much love. We forget that with our worship. The best that we offer is filled with many imperfections. But the Father receives it. Why? Because He has covered it in the love of His Son for us. We have a high priest a liturgist in heaven who ministers in the perfections of God's glory. Worship the Father. 
We worship the Father, secondly, in Christ. And, and you see Jesus bringing this out when you get down to the verses 25 and 26 when, when this woman, as she is challenged with the whole issue of worship, she quickly focuses on the Messiah and, and Jesus responds to her. And again, this is, this is part of the problem with English translations. It doesn't bring out the Greek language, what Jesus says most definitively. If you were to translate it literally from the Greek, when she asks, I know the Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am who speaks to you. What Jesus was saying in that moment to the woman, and she would have understood, this would have taken her right back to Moses in the burning bush. I am is before you. I am the one in whom you worship the Father. You see, our greatest need in worship is not so much what we are doing. It is not so much about whether or not uh, the, the form is to our liking. The greatest thing about worship is our need of Christ. We need Christ to to deal with our sinfulness, our offensiveness before the Father. We need Christ to take even what we offer and to wash it with His atoning sacrifice, to make it clean. We need the true minister, the true worship leader before God. We heard the cry of worship In Psalm 29 and in Psalm 96, we are told to worship in the beauty of holiness. Worship in the beauty of holiness. My friends, what does your holiness look like before God? I don't say that to disparage you. You have to stop and think, what does my holiness look like before God? And like all things pertaining to God, all things that we need before God. God is the one who provides that beauty for us in His Son. We need His priesthood. We need His sacrifice to to wash clean the stains of sin that cover everything we touch. But we need His priesthood even more to take what we offer in all our weaknesses and to bathe it in all of His righteousness and in all of His perfections and all of His holiness so that He can say to God, here is what My people have offered to you in Me. Receive it. And He receives it. Isn't that amazing? That is our God. And that is the glory of worship in Christ that is waiting for us. If you look at Revelation 5 and, and, and you see there the new song being sung in heavenly glory. 
and and do you, you begin there in Revelation 5 at verse 9 and the worthiness of Christ is being proclaimed by the church, the 24 elders who fall before the Lamb. Uh, they are singing this new song, the worthiness of Christ. And then it breaks into that great doxology and praise at verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne to the land forever and ever. And then what do you see at at verse 14? The four living creatures saying, Amen. The 24 elders, the church falling down and worshiping Him who lives forever and ever. And God has provided this. Without Christ the I Am, our worship is not anything that God can delight in. But with Christ, the Father's pleasure. The Father's pleased to receive it. And the last thing that we see here about our worship, and this is the one that we focus most on, but I wanted us to focus most on who and how. But we come to those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when we come to this phrase about God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth, it's not saying that elements aren't important. Elements being, what is it that we do in worship? Yes, they are important. God says, you shall worship me the way that I want to be worshipped, not the way you want to worship me. God is very clear in His Word that way. That just because we think it's good and delighting our hearts, that it's something God will delight in. That's not always the case. So elements are important. But as we've already seen, mere ceremony without the soul engaged is just as offensive to God. The Spirit is there to commune with God in worship. And God, when He says to worship in spirit and in truth, it again begins with who He is. God is Spirit. And that speaks to us in our material, physical world that God is not like us. (laughs) That He is completely other in His being. He has a nature, a glory, a purity, a being of eternal, infinite majesty. And we must keep and bear that in mind when we worship God. We are small-minded to think that because we either enjoyed something or didn't enjoy something, so it is with God. (laughs) And when he says to worship Him in spirit, he is talking about our soul that has been renewed by His Spirit so that what we offer is from the heart and not merely from the hands. It's like that person who finds it so easy just to give a hundred dollars to something so that they can operate, but doesn't want to serve. And it's easy to do that. God is saying, no, let your heart be in what you offer. And it is the Holy Spirit who 
powerfully awakens the soul to offer praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God in humble devotion where we give Him the honor and the glory and the blessing that is due His name. That's the heart at work. And in truth, knowledge, wisdom, God's Word, God wants us to offer what He has revealed to us, what is to be offered. It's not our preferences or our desires. You go all the way back to Exodus 32. The golden calf. (laughs) And Adam forming that and then saying to Israel, here, worship your God. And God destroyed quite a number of them. It's not our preferences or our desires. There's a truth a truth found in Christ, a truth found in Christ in His Word that God says through this, you are to worship Me. I always say to people, you wonder why we have an order of service here. It's because God asks for these things. It's not a for-Him sandwich. But it's an order where we are trying to respond to what God has revealed to us of what He expects when we come together as His church to worship in the beauty of Him. So worship the Father. Worship the Father in Christ. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is the church's main labor. And that's why the Lord's Day today is so essential. It's all about God. Let us pray.